Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis 1:31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And Romans 12, 2. Do not be confirmed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Um, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, hey, good morning, everyone. Let's, uh, let's address the elephant in the room right at the beginning. Uh, seeing me preach is like spotting an albino Sasquatch in the wild. Your brain probably doesn't know what to do with the information. You're not sure whether you're more excited or scared. If it's any consolation, I, I join you in that. So we're going to find out whether you're really lucky or unlucky today. Maybe a little of both. But uh, yeah, I obviously know a lot of people in the room, uh, but for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Carson Joyner, and I have been with New Valley Church since we launched back in October of 2004. Uh, I led worship that first Sunday as a volunteer, and over the last 19 years, that role has grown into a part-time job and then a full-time job back in 2010. And today, I'm the executive director of the church, oversee our staff team and our small group ministry, and obviously continue to do the worship ministry. And today was a great day for me to see the youth band take over and do what I do most weeks uh, so well. And uh, I get to take over Scott's job and do what he does so well. Um, uh, over all those years, uh, I've not preached a lot. Uh, this is probably my sixth or seventh sermon ever. Um, and it feels a lot like the first one since it's been a while. But I do love to be in the room when we're talking about our series and brainstorming and thinking about them. And apparently I was a little too passionate about Christ and culture because I earned a spot in the starting lineup uh, this morning. So we're going to talk about Christ and culture. And this is part of our series called Tension. And I want to begin with sharing what it's like to teach children about food. Yeah, it'll make sense in a second. But one of the hardest things as a parent that they don't really tell you about is teaching your kids about food. Uh, we all know when, when we're young, we, we don't just come out of the womb actually knowing how to eat. We definitely can't eat solid food. And so you have to teach your babies and your infants literally the mechanics of eating, which is kind of wild because pretty much every other species comes out of the womb, hits the ground running for their lives, and we don't know how to eat when we're born, you know? But uh, yeah, you teach your kids the mechanics, how to hold a utensil. Uh, I didn't expect this one. You have to teach your kids the direction food goes into the mouth. I've seen my kid take a bite straight up out of the middle of a piece of pizza like this before. I've seen my kid bisect a hot dog from the side with the first bite, you know? Now, that's hard. It's hard to teach your kids the mechanics of eating. Uh, but what is way more hard and way more important is teaching your kids how to relate to food and how to have a balanced diet. Now that is hard, and that's the part they don't tell you about. It's a daily, daily battle. Just imagine what a kid's diet would look like if there was no adult supervision. It'd be like Buddy the Elf, 24-7. <laughs> Just syrup on spaghetti, pouring milk over weird things like popcorn, you know? This is a hard battle that we fight, but it's a battle worth fighting, and here's why. Food is an essential and unavoidable and really powerful part of life. It can be employed for unbelievable good or bad. 
Food has this power to bring a lifetime of joy and blessing and community. Or it can overpower us and literally destroy our lives. The world of food can be exciting, filled with diversity and flavor and blessing when it's within its proper bounds. But when it's not, it become, can become a prison and a curse to people. And so food is really powerful. And as a loving parent, I obviously want to set my kids up for a lifetime of enjoyment and blessing in the realm of food, to not be afraid of it, to know how to engage food and relate to food, how to have a balanced diet, and I want to protect them from all the potential curses that could come with this powerful and wonderful area of life. So that brings me to what we're going to talk about today, even though food is probably my only area of expertise. <laughs> I want to talk to us about culture, of which food is a part, actually. Now, culture is a really big term, so what do I mean when I say culture? Well, we're going to use a definition from a 19th century uh, English anthropologist named Edward Burnett Tyler. He's famous for defining culture this way. That complex whole, which includes knowledge, belief, art, morals, law, custom, and any other capabilities and habits acquired by man as a member of society. In other words, pretty much everything. Uh, it might be easier to think about what culture isn't, and I would put forth that nature is not culture, and I would put forth that God himself is not culture, even though he's the author and originator of so much of it. So culture is really broad, really big, pretty much everything. And like food, culture is essential. It's glorious. It has terrible potential as well. It's all around us all the time. And so as believers, how we relate as Christians to culture matters a ton. It matters for the joy in your life and your humanity. This is how you were made. It matters for your holiness before God, your spirituality. And it matters with your witness to other people, your mission. And our problem, like kids, we're not necessarily born into this world with an inherent knowledge of how to relate to culture. Now, I believe this. If you become a Christian and you recognize that Christ is Lord and his lordship is over everything else, uh, that is the beginning of proper order in your life. That actually is what sets you up to have the ability to relate properly for the first time ever in your life to other things in this world, all of culture. But it doesn't happen overnight. And what it takes is a radically reoriented life around Christ's lordship and the gospel in order for our relationships with other things to be righted and corrected. Meanwhile, it's complicated. We've got a thousand spiritual dietitians in our ear telling us what not to consume, what to consume. Just kind of like with diet trends, we're quick to pick up on fads and gurus rather than Christ and his eternal word. We're also quick to oversimplify and make everything black and white and simple instead of healthfully embracing tension and nuance in our engagement with culture. And we're constantly at risk of taking all the good things that culture has to offer and turning them into idols. So all of us at times have an imbalanced cultural diet. I'm very guilty of this. But as God's children, what we need, just like my kids need my parenting when it re relates to food, we need God's wisdom and guidance on how to consume culture and how not to. Not just to avoid destruction, but also how to drink deeply of all the joy and the wonderful things that are there. So it's a 
desperately a fight that is worth fighting, and we need God's help, so let's begin by praying together. God, I pray that you help me this morning uh, communicate this, uh, this big, uh, somewhat abstract idea. Would you help us to see that in our relation to culture uh, is our very lives and our witness to other people, and help us to sense how important it is. God, would you speak through me? Would you speak to us and help us to be convicted of the things we need to hear and to be reminded of the freedom and the joy that's found in you for those things as well, God? It's in Christ's name we ask. Amen. All right, so this is a big abstract idea. I realize that. Um, And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to lean pretty heavily into a tangible analogy that I'm hoping today will give some bones to this conversation. And that analogy is, I want you to imagine when we speak of culture today in the sermon, I want you to imagine that as the city around us, which, of course, it is, uh, teeming with life and bustling with activity. And I want you to imagine a neighborhood in that city, which is where you live. And your relationship, your existence in the culture, I want you to imagine that as a house. And we're going to build this house today, talking about three things, the foundation, the frame, and the furnishings, that house is going to represent your relationship to culture. So, maybe a little audacious, I'm going to have to go fast, but uh, hang with me. So let's start with the foundation. This is your gospel worldview that should undergird the house that is your life and your relationship to culture. And it's actually pretty simple. It's the gospel. That's what you need. You need a relationship with Christ, and you need the good news of the gospel worked into every facet of your life to make that foundation. But today, I want to give maybe a little more context for the gospel, the good news about Jesus, that I think makes up some healthy ingredients that are going to be the concrete of our foundation, okay? So just like with concrete, you have to, move, you have to mix ingredients together in the right chemistry to make that concrete solid. Today, we're going to talk about four ingredients to a gospel foundation. We're going to talk about the doctrines of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. These are the four ingredients. So let's start with the first ingredient of the foundation of your life, and that is the doctrine of creation. Now, why start there? Why why start with creation? You might go, "Why, why not just, let's talk about the good news. It's about Jesus. Let's just jump to Jesus. And that certainly is true, that the good news about Jesus is the gospel. But sometimes you need context for the gospel, what it actually means. Why start with creation? Well, for one, this is where the word of God begins. We all know the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this morning we heard from verse 31, which comes just a few moments later after God finishes. It says, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So we should start with creation because that's where the Word of God starts with. Secondly, as you build a theological foundation, you actually can't progress to any other theological doctrine without the doctrine of creation. Think of the creeds that we sometimes say as our confessions of faith after the sermon. The Apostles' Creed, how does it begin? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. The Nicene Creed, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. And so it's only by creation that you're ever going to arrive at the idea of sin and the fall and redemption 
and restoration. And those things provide the context for the gospel, the good news about Jesus. Now, we were very uh, fortunate here at New Valley. We had a gentleman in our congregation for many years who was a theologian and author. Uh, his name was Dale Kiefer. Sadly, we, we lost Dale a few years ago. Uh, but I remembered that Dale had written a book on creation. And when I was preparing for the sermon and thinking about the importance of this doctrine, uh, Dale's book came to mind. And I went back and read parts of this book, and it was incredibly helpful. And I want you to hear what Dale has to say about the importance of our doctrine of creation. This is what he writes. He says, if you ignore the doctrine of creation, you cannot truly know Jesus Christ, yourself, others, the world, or the universe. That's a mouthful. If you ignore the doctrine of creation, you cannot really understand sin, the reason for the law, salvation, the purpose of life, or our eternal hope. If you ignore creation, you will be hindered in your prayers and in your ability to make sense of the vast variety of life on this earth. I say amen to that. Thank you, Dale. Creation matters. Now, you might be sitting here saying, well, Carson, I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm ignoring the doctrine of creation. And, and I, I bet you're not. You're probably not ignoring it. That's sort of obvious. If you are ignoring it, you're going to have these problems. What might be less obvious is that if you have a limited or truncated or warped view of creation, it too is going to have impacts on the foundation of your life. That concrete is not going to set up properly. So what we need in a nutshell is a really robust, strong doctrine of creation, and this is going to set up the other ingredients. I hope that you stop throughout your life and just appreciate the glory of creation at times. Uh, we, my family and I, we love being in nature. We love doing this. And we love talking about it here at New Valley, and so I'm not going to talk about it a ton. But last week, Hunter gave us a great example of just the size and magnitude of creation. He was talking about the explosion that we observed in the cosmos that was 15 times the width of our Milky Way galaxy. We know that creation is insanely huge. I could talk about at length how it's also so small. An atom, which makes up everything, is 100,000 times smaller than a human hair and is, consists of mostly empty space, like 99.999 repeating empty space. It's inconceivably small. The creation is also incredibly diverse, millions and millions of species. So creation is incredible. But the most important thing today that I want you to hear is that verse that we read from Genesis 1.31, that God's pronouncement over creation, this is, this is the backbone of your doctrine of creation, not only that God made the world, but that God's own pronouncement over it was that it was very good. Think of how you would explain these other doctrines that we're going to get to in just a second. Think of how you would explain the tragedy of the fall without starting with that inconceivable size and magnitude and magnificence and glory of creation. How would you have any clarity if you're telling someone about redemption, what Christ has done, why he redeemed the world, and, and restoration, what he's promising, if you don't start back in the garden? And as it relates to our topic today, we're talking about relating to culture how are you going to begin to accurately consume and critique culture if you don't understand its glorious origin? The answer is, you can't. So just to belabor the point a bit, it's, it's by the doctrine of creation that it informs us that all of the expressions of being human in this world, language, the arts, our customs, our ways of living, 
that all of these things come some form in the mind of God at creation and that they were originally intended and ultimately destined to glorify him and demonstrate his beauty and artistry in and through us. The doctrine of creation informs us that the problems and all the brokenness we see in the world aren't equal realities to the good, but rather these things are more like ivies growing over a glorious ruin. And you can hack away ivies, and you can reveal this glorious structure that once was and still could be someday, and we have a promise it will be. The doctrine of creation also informs us that no matter how dirty the water of culture gets, there's always a proverbial baby in the water, something worth throwing our hands into and laying hold of and identifying and rescuing and nurturing and celebrating. The doctrine of creation is critical. It made me think of Samwise Gamgee's quote in Lord of the Rings when Frodo has all but lost hope, and he asks Sam why they should keep going, and Sam says, because there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. That's what the doctrine of creation does for us. It's our hope, and it is very good. Now, if you're doing the mental math and saying, okay, you still got to talk about fall and redemption, <laughs> we're going to go very fast from this point on, okay? We're going to speed up. But just understand that it's, if you have a really, really robust, strong, rich doctrine of creation, what that does is enables you then to have a very profound doctrine of the fall. At Christmas time, we sing the hymn, Joy to the World, and it has this verse that says, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. So how far can the curse be found? Well, it can be found as far as creation goes. And how far does redemption go? It goes as far as the curse. And so just like the fall, redemption and restoration are the similar. They get their weight and their impetus from our doctrines of the fall and of creation, most importantly. It's precisely because the world is so wondrously made then so horribly broken that God sends his one and only son to thoroughly redeem and restore it. It's that world that God loves so much in John 3.16. It makes sense that he gives his one and only son for this world. He adores it. He loves it. And it's that drama and it's this context of these doctrines that the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ plays out within. So the reason why I'm talking about this is I don't want you to miss the beauty and the drama and the weight of your faith. You desperately need these rich, deep theological doctrines to undergird your understanding of the gospel. These things, when they're mixed together in proper proportion, form a good concrete to lay the foundation of your worldview. So let's talk about the frame. Uh, what is a frame? Well, uh, in our analogy today, the way I think of the frame is uh, the frame is the thing that is now flowing out of that foundation, which is your worldview, your ideology. And the frame is something tangible growing out of that foundation that is built to interact with the rest of the world. This is the beginnings and the bones of a home that's going to be lived in, in that neighborhood and in that city. And so it matters. If you have a good foundation, you have the possibility for a good frame. So what we're going to look at with frame is signs of stability and instability in your frame. And I want you to ask yourself these questions as we go through it. How is the frame of my life when I consider these things? We're going to look at three. The first is engagement or disengagement. What do I mean by engagement? Well, I don't mean blind participation. 
In order to be engaged with culture, it doesn't mean that you're blindly participating in everything. What I'm talking about is purpose. The only reason why there is a foundation, the only reason why someone would erect a frame is to engage with the world around it, to be lived in as a home on that neighborhood, in that city. And so the only correct posture in a general sense as a Christian is one of being engaged with the world around us. And if you see a Christian who is disengaged from everything, what you see is a Christian who does not have purpose. They don't understand the mission that we're called to, why Christ has come to us. And so there's a great song by Johnny Cash where he quotes a famous quote. You'll recognize it when I say it. But here's this Johnny Cash lyric from his song, No Earthly Good. He says, you're shining your light and shine it you should, but you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Just because we're heavenly minded and we're thinking about the promises to us and redemption and restoration, those things to come, we should not disengage exactly the opposite. Being heavenly minded cannot make us of no earthly good. It should make us of great good. So the first sign of stability and strength is engagement. The second one is a balance between two things. I'm going to call it affirmation and critique. Now, I do not mean affirmation in any of the ways that that word is used in regards to gender and sexuality, so just forget all of that. What I'm talking about is affirmation of creational good in your engagement with culture and critique of fallen brokenness. And there needs to be a harmony and a balance between these things in your life. As you relate to culture, there needs to be affirmation and critique. You've experienced this if you've ever tried to give construction, constructive feedback to another human being. If you come in with critique only, just like a bull in a china shop, you did this wrong, you did this wrong, you did this wrong, how does that tend to go? Not well, right? But when you remind yourself, you affirm in yourself, I, I love this person, I want the best for this person. And you affirm that person and you say, I love you, I want the best for you, I value you. Here's all the ways in which you're doing a great job and I have something that I want to give you that I think can help you. You might earn the right to actually speak truth into that person's life. And so affirmation and critique of culture are similar to that. So let me just talk about affirmation for a second. This flows again from our doctrine of creation, okay? Believing that God created the world and that it is good and glorious. Out of that comes the need to affirm that. When we see God's beauty, when we see his presence in the world, we want to affirm it and call it out. It's characterized by love, love of God, love of his creation, which includes culture. And it is characterized by hope. God's going to redeem everything, restoration and redemption. Secondly, I want to talk about our critique of brokenness, and I believe this should always be secondary to our affirmation of the creational good. It, too, flows from our doctrine of creation. It also flows from our doctrine of the fall. The creation is glorious. The fall is grievous. And so it needs critique, the critique that Christ and the gospel would bring to it. But that critique is also needs to be characterized by love and by hope because we love God. You defend what you love. You critique with a purpose to improve because Christ is a redeemer. And so we need a balance between these things. But here's the thing. It's really, really hard, really complicated. Every cultural situation you might encounter is going to be different from the next. You are different from everybody else in this room. And we live, let's face it, in complicated times. 
And so none of us are doing this balance perfectly, but we're striving for balance. But I did want to talk about two obvious missteps, two obvious ways that the balance between affirmation of creational good and critique of fallen brokenness are not working in good harmony. And I want to step away just from our house analogy for a second and talk about posture because it just helps me imagine it, so I'm hoping it'll help you. So this posture towards culture, arms wide open, I'm going to call it the creed posture for you 90s kids, okay? With arms wide open, I'm not going to sing it. With arms, no, I'm just going to. This posture is an obvious misstep in your relationship with culture. And the reason because, uh, as a Christian, this posture doesn't look any different than anybody who's not a Christian. Uh, this, this posture is not compelling to someone outside the faith. And this posture does not recognize the existence of the fall. That's an obvious misstep if our, cult, if our posture is that way. On the other side, if your posture is like this towards culture constantly, or maybe like this, and the only artist I could think of for some reason was Madonna, which doesn't make a lot of sense because Madonna was more like this than she was like that. But like when she's voguing, you know, just picture arms crossed. Okay, that posture is an obvious misstep towards culture because it denies the goodness of creation. It denies the hope of redemption and restoration. If you live your life constantly only rejecting culture like this, only critiquing, so I never thought I'd say this, but a balanced posture is going to look more like the Macarena, <laughs> where at times, hands are out, and at times, hands are not, and then sometimes you're doing the cha-cha or whatever that thing is. <laughs> so ask yourself, what does my posture look like to those around me, the people that know me best? How would they describe my posture towards culture? Am I lacking balance and wisdom in my posture? All right. The third thing is the spirit of our relationship to culture. I've already said a lot that these things, both our affirmation and our critique, they need to flow from love and from hope. That's the right spirit because it's God's spirit at work in and through us. But there's another spirit, a spirit of fear that I think all too often I see characterizing the church's relationship with culture and it, it deeply troubles me and it deeply saddens me. I do I understand it. I understand that the world is scary. I understand that things change fast and that it can be very disorienting at times. But what that is, it's a difficult context, but that context is a test for us. It's a, really a test of your foundation and of your frame. Are you standing firm in the gospel? Are you anchored to the ground? Does your frame have the ability to support the white, the weight of walls and a home? So difficult, yes, but one thing we cannot do is get over, give over to a spirit of fear. In 2 Timothy 1.7, famous passage, it says that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And so I want to speak just a little bit more on fear uh, because two things, one, Going back to the posture, who, who wants among us, who wants to live your life like this as a believer in Christ? If you're saying he's, he's in control of everything, he's Lord, why, why would you want to live your life this way? That's not appealing to me. I, I don't, I don't want to live like that constantly. And if you're outside the Christian community and you're watching Christians, what about that posture communicates good news 
to the rest of the world, that Christ is the truth and that there's freedom and joy found in him. If people are just living in fear like this towards culture, rejecting everything, it's sad to me. I think that we are very prone to this. Um, I wanted to say a note for the older among us and the younger among us. Both things I'm about to say would apply to people of any age, uh, but I think that there's unique temptations for these different age groups. Uh, for the older among us, you've lived maybe the majority of your life and you're wanting to see the world be a better place than, than, than you experienced it. And it's tempting to see culture shifting like a rug being pulled out from underneath you at times and fear can creep in very easily. And what I want to say is news organizations prey upon that fear. You know a tree by its fruit and the fruit that I see so often among people who are absorbed into that 24-hour news cycle is a spirit of anger, a dehumanizing spirit, division, contempt, selective outrage, rumor, conspiracy. These things are not of Christ's kingdom or his spirit. This obviously preys upon younger people too, but I think there's that unique temptation for those of us who are older. Um, so I challenge you, if that's you, I challenge you to root those motivations and those emotions out of your life. The church desperately, desperately needs you to opt out of those things. Now for the younger among us. I think social media preys upon those same fears. The fruit that I see in our country and in our younger people is that of increasing anxiety, self-hatred, depression, cynicism, and a loss of hope. These things are not of Christ's kingdom and his spirit. I challenge you to opt out of these things if that's you. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And you're missing out on so much joy. Culture is filled with blessing, just like food. There's so much joy to be had. There's so much diversity and amazing freedom in Christ. You need incredible wisdom. So let's talk about our last point then, the furnishings. And this one will be shorter. I can't tell you a lot about the furnishings because that's really your job. Uh, you have got to move into your house. You've got to live in that home. Live out of there. That's your job. Now, Caleb did want me to say that if you're flush with cash, Curtisi Co. would love to furnish your worldview house with imaginary <laughs> furniture. Or your real house with real furniture, whichever you choose. Very flexible company. But I do want to say this. Furnishings are really fun, you guys. Furnishings are how you get to personalize your home. It goes from being a structure, a house, to being a home. Think of like a really well-furnished home that you've been in and how great that makes it feel and how warm and inviting that can be. You get to express yourself in the furnishings and it's deeply personal. So make your house beautiful and you're gonna need to rely on God to guide you. Our second passage today was from Romans 12, verse two, and it says this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I think that's a, a great description of what it's like to furnish your home and your life. You need to rely on God to perceive and discern his will as it relates to culture. And there's a warning that we do need to hear in that verse. It says, do not be conformed to this world. And so 
that would come from one of those postures that we talked about that are just clearly wrong. But I have good news for you today. There's something else that you can be conformed into the image of. Earlier in that same letter, Paul writes this, chapter 8, verse 29. For those whom he, God, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Jesus. So we do need the warning to not be conformed into the pattern of this world, but the good news of the gospel is if you place your trust in Christ and know him and sit at the feet of Christ and fellowship with him, this house, this firm foundation, this righteous frame begins to build itself because of Christ working in and through you. And that work starts with you before it ever emerges out into the neighborhood in the city. When you've been conformed more into his image of Christ, then your worldview can flow out into the rest of the world. So, we've covered a lot of ground. It's probably like drinking from a fire hose or something like that. Uh, but let's recap. Um, I appreciate you guys building this metaphorical house with me. Uh, it's all summarized again by the gospel. Really what you need is Christ. And you need the gospel fleshed out in your life. Now, if you already have that, as a maturing, thinking Christian, you also need to continue to flesh out your doctrines of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. If you're listening today and you know that your relationship with culture is not quite right and that it needs work, uh, go back to the basics. Think of those doctrines. Think of the essence of the gospel. Let those things take root. If you do that, uh, then move on to the frame. Consider whether you're engaged with the world around you, whether you're engaging with culture faithfully. Avoid those opposite poles of posture, embracing everything culture would have without discrimination or just fearful and rejecting everything from culture. Don't be like Creed. Don't be like Madonna. Do the Macarena. <laughs> I want you guys to work on affirming creational good always before you move to critiquing what's fallen and broken. Check your motivations, be rooting fear and anger and these warped things out of your heart. Let the love of God become your MO. I challenge you to pursue a more balanced cultural diet in the week to come. There's so much diversity and beauty and joy to be had and it's worth the tension and it's worth the fight. And lastly, furnish your home. Beautiful, courtesy co-furnishings everywhere. <laughs> Christ-likeness. And imagine the impact that a house like that could have on a neighborhood in a city. Let's pray. God, your gospel is so good. I pray that as the church, we can help to recover the beauty of the good news for our world around us, for the culture around us, God. May we be focused on what we love and what we see as beautiful within your kingdom. May that fuel our interaction with culture. Lord God, may we not become busy bees feeling like we have to do this on our own. May we understand that this happens passively by knowing you and sitting at your feet. Help us to rest in the good news of the gospel today. And this week, would your spirit bring to mind some areas that we need to work on, Lord God. Make us chaste. Make us free, Lord God. In all these things, we pray in the name of Christ.
Amen.